Welcome to the Psychological Society of Ireland, the PSI podcast, where we bring you interesting and hopefully entertaining and informative podcasts about a myriad of topics. This time we're talking about mindfulness. And our two expert guests today are Dr. Damien Lowry from the Psychological Society of Ireland and Brendan Kelly, who's the Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin, consultant psychiatrist at Tala Hospital and author of books from forensic psychiatry to shell shock in World War I. Thank you for for joining us, guys. And I suppose, first of all, the first question, what is mindfulness? Damien? I could potentially answer that in a myriad of ways, um, but I think it would be remiss of me not to quote a very recognisable figure in this domain, John Kabat-Zinn, and use his description for mindfulness, which is paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally, which I think captures to a large extent what mindfulness often is. That pretty much sums it up. And what's your background in it? Well, again, I could answer that in a number of ways, but I I would almost say, you know, from a very early age, I was raised in a very religious family. My parents are committed Catholics and it hasn't quite rubbed off on me, I must admit. But uh, we would have been a mass-going family. It was rooted in our uh, our family uh, customs on a weekly basis um, and at times daily basis. So I've spent a lot of time absorbing aspects of mindfulness, albeit within a religious tradition. Now, in latter years, I would say I have gone to uh, Harvard Medical School, the Mind Body Medical Institute, where it was at the time, and attended a, a week-long course with Dr. Herbert Benson. Um, on mind-body medicine. And Dr. Benson is renowned for authoring the book The Relaxation Response, which is very closely aligned with mindfulness. And he was privileged enough to have studied the Tibetan monks uh, with the permission of uh, the Dalai Lama. Um, And I applied scientific rigour to aspects of meditation, mindfulness, etc. And I use mindfulness quite regularly in my clinical work. So I'd work as a psychologist often with clinical populations in a hospital setting or indeed in uh, a private practice setting for general individuals. And uh, the approach I use is something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is often referred to as a third wave uh, therapy, which largely refers to the fact that it uses mindfulness uh, in many of its uh, applications. Um, Brandon, do you think, does it work? Yes, mindfulness works. Um, I, I'm a d- medical doctor, a psychiatrist, and I've had a long-standing interest in mindfulness, um, particularly its roots in Buddhist tradition. And I think there's a very long um, tradition of the use of mindfulness and similar contemplative techniques in Buddhism and in, in most um, religious and spiritual traditions around the world. Uh, and it delivers enormous benefits for people. And this has been you know, picked up on by psychology and psychotherapy. And lots of forms of psychotherapy now include some mindfulness as part of their programmes of care. And what exactly are those benefits? Well, I mean, it's so interesting. Mindfulness is now everywhere. It's in the media, it's on the news, it's on the internet, it's on bumper stickers, it's all over the place. Uh, But the benefits and the ways of using it are so diverse, it's sometimes bewildering to figure out what's going on at all. Um, A couple of years ago, I tried to figure this out by doing some mindfulness meditating every day for a year. And I wrote a book about it called The Doctor Who Sat for a Year um, in an effort to figure out exactly your question. Does it produce benefits in a sort of a busy, modern life, working, you know, with family and commuting and all kinds of things? Does mindfulness help? And the answer is it does. 
And is it the same as meditation? Well, meditation um, can often involve mindfulness. Uh, mindfulness, as Damien said, it's about having a careful, non-judgmental awareness of the present moment. And in, in some senses, it's a way of training your attention and training your emotional regulation and stopping trying to stop responding to every little thought that pops into your head. And these are really, really good skills that help us, not just when one might be meditating, but they help us through the day as well. And you said you found that it worked for you. How did it work for you? Well, the self-awareness was critical in that sitting and focusing on the present moment and your thoughts made, made me more aware of the hundreds or thousands of uh, inconsequential thoughts that clutter up my head every moment. But is that not a little bit navel-gazing type? (laughs) It is. And you find that when you do navel-gazing that there's all this chattering going on in your head. It's been likened to a group of monkeys in a tree all talking at the same time. And when you become aware of that, then later in the day, let's say you're, you're in the traffic, Someone cuts out in front of you. You're just certainly I am just that little bit slower to be angered by that random event. I'm a little more aware of the irritation building up in me. And that self-awareness is one of the enormous benefits. So it sounds like there's loads of benefits. But Damien, are there any risks? Um, Yeah, could I maybe? Well, let me just address the risks question first. And and if I could swing back to the benefits. Of course, Um, yeah. Uh, at least uh, as I might see them. Um, There are few, if any, risks, um, I think it would be fair to say. It's not likely to do harm and any momentary distress that might come about in some instances uh, because everybody's at a different point in time in their own lives and if you get someone to close their eyes and attempt to meditate having not really learned how to do that before and they're in the midst of a crisis, their distress levels are sky high Even if in extreme circumstances they're in the early stages of a psychotic episode or something, that's not going to be a pleasant uh, experience for an individual, I would would, uh, imagine. So um, it's it's risky in how it might be um, introduced to someone and, and, and perhaps for an individual who's unexperienced in it or a practitioner who's not very experienced in it or knowledgeable about it, they might apply it or try to apply it in a problematic way at But times. for an ordinary individual who's not going through any of those issues, yeah. it may be, as you said, more beneficial. It's likely to benefit an individual more than it's likely to do anything else. Uh, I would per- not take too much umbrage with the honourable gentleman beside <laughs> me, Prof Kelly here, but uh, Brendan, who I know very well, but he, you know, I, I, I find myself mindfully reacting <laughs> to words like enormous or that the benefits are grand, you know, because I, I actually... Uh, when you when you look at m- much of the literature, um, benefits are modest. They are there; you will find them, but the benefits can at times be minimal. Um, some individuals w- will report uh, enormous benefits, and I don't doubt for a, a second that that Brendan has has obtained some degree of enlightenment in that respect, <laughs> or is on the course to do so. Uh, but um, but but by and large, I find it's actually quite a polarizing topic quite a polarising skill set and activity within the context of the clinical work that I do. So you'll find some individuals really gravitate towards it and they love it uh, and they, they, they almost 
benefit immediately from some of the exercises and activities that we might run through. Others react in a more negative sense. That's not to say that it's not working. It's just sometimes their insight into it or how it might be of benefit to them or their ability to uh, grasp it in, in a particular way can be more challenging. So the aversion can sometimes be the deterrent that 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 puts someone off. So when I, that brings me maybe back momentarily to the risk, uh, it's not so much a risk. It's that you'll often hear people say, oh, I tried to close my eyes. I tried to breathe for five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it might be. Uh, my mind was jumping all around the place. I was obviously doing it wrong. I didn't like it. I'm not really going to do that again. And And that's in and of itself an indication of what it's actually there to assist with or help ameliorate to some extent. Um, um, but but people at times struggle to get over that hurdle. So it, in doing it, it can actually open a portal to feeling discomfort. We don't really like that as humans, um, but that's actually an opportunity. So I think myself and Brendan are very much in agreement or likely to be in agreement around mindfulness can be a skill set within which you learn how to notice uh, reactions that you might not otherwise catch and respond to in a more constructive or adaptive way. But it really depends on the individual. It can. Of course it can. And we're all very, very different. Um, We generally all share in common an aversion to discomfort. But at the same time, we as humans possess discomfort. (laughs) Uh, uh, I was struck by some of Brendan's wrestlings with mindfulness and the daily practice of it in the book he mentioned earlier. I've only made it to June, so I I perhaps the the latter (laughs) heart of the year is where he really thrived. (laughs) But uh, um, it's it's uh, it's 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 a difficult process. And and, and what what he spoke speaks about early on is is uh, unsatisfactoriness, I think, is the word he uses, um, which very much reminds me of one of the early psychology thinkers, you know, for better, for worse, people have various opinions of him, but Sigmund Freud, uh, who put psychology to some extent on the map uh, and the talking method itself. Um, and Freud's, I'm going to butcher him if I try to quote directly, but paraphrasing him, he said the purpose of therapy, and I would almost insert that the purpose of mindfulness in some respects is not to reach enlightenment or to be happy, but rather to be more content uh, with everyday misery. Okay, and Brendan, how do you feel about that quote? Yeah, I'm, I think uh, the, the idea of unsatisfactoriness is a really important one in Buddhist thought and in, in a lot, lot of med- meditation. And it, it really refers to the fact that much of what we do every day turns out to be unsatisfactory. Pretty much everything is imperfect. But is that not life in general? Well, that is life in general. And I suppose a, a lot of the skills that come from B- Buddhist approaches to things are about navigating that and, and doing well. Now, a lot of people react negatively to words like mindfulness and meditation. It, it sounds all sort of new age mumbo jumbo. But I remember talking to one woman after a talk and she said, you know, I don't agree with anything you said say about mindfulness. She said, what I do is I do knitting. And I, you know, I said, well, what happens when you're knitting? And she says, well, everything goes completely out of my head. I'm only focused on one thing, which is the sound of the needles clacking off each other and the rest of the world disappears. And this is a state of absorption 
like some people get when they're running or some people get when they're swimming. And that, in fact, has many of the components of mindfulness right in there. This focus on the present moment, maybe not the self-awareness, although this woman was very self-aware because she said that at the end, knitting was better than mindfulness. Not only have you had a period of absorption, but you also have a lovely jumper at the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) There's always benefits. (laughs) And in your case, then, how long did it take you to become mindful? Well, I suppose uh, one is always becoming mindful. It is always a journey, a state of transformation. But was it a long journey? Um, Yeah, I mean, the benefits certainly initially are very modest. And a lot of people who start this, um, you know, think it it isn't working. They're trying to clear their mind and it's full of thoughts. It just keeps new thoughts keep coming in and you keep responding to them exactly what you're not supposed to do. The key message there is that that's exactly what's supposed to happen. If you're not becoming aware of all the thoughts going through your head, then you're not really doing it right. It's essentially quietening the mind. It is. And that's really difficult to do. But it's learning how to do that. You know, there's no point feeling unhappy because you have failed to quiet your mind, because if you're able to quiet your mind, then you don't need to be practicing. You know, you've you've, you've achieved it. But uh, it is a journey. So there's always a sense that you need to, to do more and you need to be we need to be modest in our self expectations and we need to have a great deal of self compassion and self tolerance when we're starting. And Damien, it's become hugely commercialised. It has, much to my chagrin. It's everywhere, as Brendan said earlier. Um, and, and, and I have no problems with it perhaps becoming commercialised. Lots of things do that are, you know, also healthy, such as gyms. So we wouldn't criticise gyms for existing just because they have a commercial dimension to them or indeed Pilates classes, yoga classes, etc. So that's the reality of it. But the, the, the issue that I at times have with the mindfulness movement and the commercial, you know, um, current behind it is that the promises are often huge and it under delivers uh, in, in, in many circumstances. Um, you'd swear it cured depression on its own. You'd swear it is the elixir or the cure-all for almost every single mental health issue that, that there is or uh, um even how a patient might benefit from tolerating chemotherapy or other harsh medical treatments for various conditions, etc. And when you look, I work in, uh, as I said, a number of different areas, but one predominantly is chronic pain. And whilst it's one of the most important psychological strategies uh, to apply within the context of managing a chronic pain condition, um, you'll see claims in the literature that it's likely to reduce pain levels by 50% at times But surely those claims should be substantiated with research of some description. Well, those claims are substantiated with the research studies that those authors have carried out. So but do this you not is, agree with it then? Well, we're possibly entering an entirely different conversation, or at least an extension of the conversation, because when you scrutinise research, just because a research study exists that claims this or that doesn't mean it's worth the paper it's printed on. It's estimated about 80%, if not up towards 90% of research is heavily biased. I won't say it's poor, but it's heavily biased and and methodologically limited. So, so do we have any evidence then, proper evidence to show that mindfulness works? Of course we do. Of course we do. Sticking with perhaps the chronic pain example, what I tend to find myself looking at is something called a meta-analysis or a systematic review, which effectively tries to claw in as many papers as possible, looking at, relatively speaking, the same issue 
and they they aggregate them. They kind of clump them all together and say, okay, well, on average, you know, amongst all of these papers, testing all of these patients on this particular thing, what do we what do we find in general on average? So you find an aggregate score that that meta analysis and the aggregate score is usually so much more modest uh, than some of the claims, you know, that that individual papers might uh, might might put out there. And then going back to your own patients, I mean, if you have to recommend some mindfulness exercises, which ones would you go for? That's going to be highly uh, person specific. Is and it? Yeah, because one person might actually like knitting. As Brendan said, one another person might like exercising. I find I'm at my most zen or mindful, meditative is when I'm running. I've, I have a background in running and I, I enjoy doing it. And the longer I run for, the more I'm likely to find myself dropping into that meditative state of mind. Uh, for another person, they might like colouring or art. Uh, or for another person, such as Brendan, uh, uh, he might enjoy sitting down uh, on a daily basis for 15 or more minutes and meditating on something specific. And what do you do, Brendan? Yeah, I sit down a great deal. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You sat for a year once. (laughs) Yeah, well, yes, uh, 10 or 15 minutes sitting down per day is very good. Um, I also like and I commonly recommend people do yoga. Some people find the sitting down just doesn't sort of fit with them. When you say sitting down, are are you on the floor? Are you on a chair or what way do you do it? Well, the important thing is that you sit in a way that is comfortable and solid for you. Certainly for me, and I go go into this a bit in The Doctor Who Sat for a Year, which is the book. Um, I'm sitting on a chair, uh, hands on my knees, both feet firmly on the floor and back relatively straight, but not uncomfortably so. And ideally, one's head is looking forward and then tilted slightly down, just a little bit, slightly more relaxed. Do you close your eyes? Yeah, uh, yeah, I close my eyes. Uh, It just removes some of the other distractions. But if I open them at some point, it's not the end of the world. You know, what you, you try to do this in a in a in a sort of a flexible way. Um, now, a lot of people try to sit in a meditation position. You know, we have these pictures of uh, you know monks in in Tibet in their robes, sitting up on mountaintops. But for an awful lot of people, that's just too painful. And there's no point sitting there trying to get through excruciating pain in your legs. Your, I mean, there's absolutely zero point in that. So you sit in a relatively solid position in a relatively quiet place where you're relatively unlikely to be disturbed. And if you get disturbed, you know phone rings or someone comes in you just have to deal with it and then settle yourself back down again it's important not to be too rigid or obsessional about getting you know special time away from the world and Damien just finally to come back to you then is there anywhere somebody can go to find out more information the the, the problem in the sense is that there's so much out there to do with mindfulness we talked earlier about it being heavily commercialised so people will be selling this and that around it if if anyone wants to perhaps access a resource that's free and freely available and tried and tested one of the PSI's past presidents is a, a man called Dr Niall Pender he's the manager of the psychology department out in Beaumont and Beaumont Hospital to their credit the psychology department at least have created what's called the Mindfulness and Relaxation Centre. So this is a part of their website with lots of online resources freely available to members of the public. They just have to click in. So if they if they Googled Beaumont Hospital Psychology and Mark with a C-M-A or C, it'll come up on their feed 
and bring them directly to that page. There's lots of mindfulness links that they can click on and enjoy the benefits of. Dr. Damien Lowry from the Psychological Society of Ireland, PSI, and Brendan Kelly, Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College Dublin and Consultant Psychiatrist at Tala Hospital. Thank you very much for your time. I think we've absolutely learned a huge amount here. And that was the Psychological Society of Ireland at the PSI podcast, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.